At last my life has ended and I enter heaven's rest. I will live in God's eternal peace in the dwelling of the blessed. All my pain will then be over. Earthly cares will all fade away. Golden light will glisten from the throne of God. No His nail-scarred hands waiting there to welcome me. Going home, going home, I will enter there by grace alone. Oh, what joys my heart has never Within my father's house, safely home, home at last, safely home, home at last. Um. You need to repeat that course at the end. Man, I don't know about you, but I wanted to hear him say that going home one more time. Man, that was good. I like that. That was a really good job. A great song. At first, I wondered if it was something he wrote, and I don't think it is. I think it's something I've heard maybe before, but boy, I'll tell you what, that is a tremendous, tremendous song, isn't it? Great message. He did such a great job on it. All right, well... Um, Last Sunday night, we unveiled our new theme for the year, and we said our theme is the Lord's Day. We noted some alarming trends in our society that, well, should concern every believer. We said that 63% of Americans identify as Christians. You say, well, that's pretty good, but that marks a 15-point drop in the past 14 years, according to Pew Research. 78% called themselves Christians in 2007. It's amazing, isn't it? The decline of Christians in the U.S. has been matched by a rise in the religiously unaffiliated. Their number has almost doubled since 2007. That number has gone from 16% to 29%. Only 47% of Americans are members of a house of worship. 
Again, it's not designating what kind. It's just saying a house of worship. And less than, that means that less than half of Americans said that they belong then to a church, if you will, or to some house of worship. That marks the first time since Gallup began collecting data in 1937 that a majority of Americans aren't part of a church, that at least 50 or more percent aren't part of a synagogue or mosque or a church of some kind. Religious membership was stable throughout the 20th century, but it fell from 70% in 2000 to 47% in 2020. That's alarming, I think. It's, it's scary almost. It's, a real, it's problematic, if you will. Not only that, but congregations are growing older. We said that 17% of Americans are 65 and older, and yet 33% of U.S. congregations are senior citizens. Double, double the percentage of population. That means that our churches are growing older then. Not only are congregations growing older, but so are their leaders. We noted that the average clergy member is 57 today compared to 50 in 2000, in the year 2000. So over the last 20 years or so, we've noted that, well, preachers are getting older, but the young people aren't going into the ministry like they used to. Again, that just means that we're ultimately in for a rude awakening. Ultimately, there won't be too many churches out there that are doing the work of God. And again, uh, we need to be very aware of that. So the sad reality, and this is a sad reality, 7 in 10 U.S. churches have 100 or fewer weekly worship service attendees. Half of all churches have fewer than 65 people in their weekly worship services. Now again, that, that, you say that's no big deal, but, but it is. And I know that the trend is toward larger churches, that people are more apt to go to them, and there are good reasons for that. Someone might say, well, that's because they have all the programming. No, I think it's because they have a lot of obscurity. I think a lot of times people like to go to big churches because they want to get lost in it. They don't want to be recognized or held accountable for things. It's easy to go to church on a Sunday morning and go for an hour and leave and no one calls you, no one lets you know, and you feel good about yourself, but you don't have to worry about someone saying, hey, how about helping us over here? How about doing this? Hey, when's the last time you went out? Uh, how's come you missed last week? I think a lot of that has to do with why so many more people are gravitating toward, as we would call them, larger churches. And may I say that as our church continues to grow, and it will grow, Lord willing, that we'll find that that might be more apt the case too, that some people really don't want to be involved in church. They just show up because that they appreciate the fact that, you know, in their own mind, I've taken care of my duty. I've gone to church. Well, I hope that never gets to be the case here. I hope that folks that attend Community Baptist want to be a part of the body and want to co contribute. But sadly enough, we have a reality here that most churches are under 100 and that, the, the, that even half of churches have fewer than 65 in their weekly worship service. That's a, that's a rough trend. That's a bad trend. So there's some takeaways. We said that there's obviously a lack of interest in the church. Less than 40, only 47% of folks say that they attend a house of worship, and that includes synagogues, mosques, and churches like ours even. There, there's an obvious lack of interest in the church. There's, there's, uh, uh, excuse me, there's less and less folks attending church today than before. And finally, there's a lackadaisical and nonchalant attitude towards church and faith. That's what we see here as a result of the numbers. And these are just simply symptoms of a greater problem then. And that real problem is that there's been a departure from the mindset or the attitude of the Lord's Day. It wasn't that long ago that our society in general recognized Sundays as the Lord's Day. This recognition was even mandated in the law of the land. We had what was often called blue laws, and those blue laws said that Sundays were special. It was a day of rest. It was protected. These particular laws, in a sense, outlawed, if you will, sin and antisocial behavior on Sundays. It included things like 
sporting, sports and gambling and rioting, it says, and quarreling. This is, the, you know, this is Ohio's blue law back in early 1800s. It literally outlawed, it said, sporting, gambling, rioting, quarreling, hunting, horse racing, shooting, and common labors. You can't do those things on Sundays. That was the law in 1809 in the state of Ohio. You could do necessary work, it said. Not common labor, but necessary work. So if you were a farmer and you had to feed the animals, you could. If you were a doctor and you had to, you had to treat somebody that was ill, that's fine. You were a nurse and you were taking care of people that couldn't take care of themselves, you're good to go. But Walmart's not open. You do your shopping on Monday through Saturday is how it used to be. And you know, the general population believed in those days that Sundays were to be spent worshiping God. Activities that tended to keep people from attending church were prevented. They, they didn't allow it. They didn't want it. Businesses were not open on Sundays and there was no sale of alcohol. And these kind of uh, laws popped up all across our country. Individual states and communities implemented these kind of laws in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. So just 130, 40 years ago, they were popping up everywhere and they were really making an impact in our country. Sadly, our culture has become more and more secularized. That's a simple word for being worldly. And as a result of that, folks resisted and they began to reject those laws and those social norms. The social norm was to respect Sunday as the Lord's day. That has, has changed. Step by step, little by little, legislation was passed overturning or removing those restrictions leading up to today, where Sundays are not really any different than any other day of the week. Stores and shops are open, restaurants and fast food serve all day, little league sports programs and schedules, uh, 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 schedule games and so forth. There's, I mean, honestly, tournaments and, and uh, um, things like that take place on Sundays more than ever. Uh, society as a whole views Sunday as simply a day of leisure, recreation, and household projects. It used to be sacred, considered the day of the Lord, but not so much today. You know what Sundays today is most often viewed as? It's viewed as my day off, my time to unwind, my time to get something done around the house. Sunday is my day. Fewer and fewer folks accept Sunday as the Lord's day today. Or that it should be spent worshiping God. This year's theme is the Lord's day and for good reason. If you hear my stomach growling this morning, it is growling so loud right now. It's like, I'm like, keep it down. It's McDonald's fault. You say, why? Let me tell you why. I came here early did a few things, and I thought, I'm going to run over and just grab a couple of those sausage McMuffins because those are two bucks, and you get one for a dollar. So for three, you can get two. They were closed for maintenance this morning. Can you imagine on a Sunday, closed for maintenance? How am I going to do my job if they're not working? You're laughing, but I'm not. <laughs> but this year's theme is the Lord's Day, and it's for good reason again. We, kinda, we need a revival of the Lord's Day, don't we? We really do. And we see these growing trends as we see them growing, these growing trends away from God and away from God's house and away from godliness. When we think about this phrase, the Lord's Day... I don't know about you, but I can't help but find myself going back to the beginning. Go, would you please, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. We're going to read just the first three verses. The opening verses of Genesis chapter 2 
seem to be somewhat of a footnote to the story of creation. Begins to fill us in with a few details and some other things that are going on. But notice how it begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, I think it's kind of interesting, and this isn't part of the message, but let me just make, make note of this, and maybe there's something to it, maybe there's not. But I look at this, and it says in verse 2, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, no, which he had made. I think it's interesting. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. It almost seems to me that real work produces something. Right? If you're working, you should be producing something. That's kind of an interesting thought. We don't have time to develop it, but think about that. In the world we live sometimes, it seems like people are getting paid to do nothing. But real work should be something that actually produces something. Nonetheless, we move on. So as we read through this particular passage, these three verses, it says that God rested. And that's a wonderful thing. God's rest is a wonderful thing. But hold on. It can't be that God got tired, right? That's not what it's implying for sure. I mean, the more we understand about the nature of the physical universe, the more we see that the material universe is merely an expression of God's manifold energy. You say, what do you mean? Well, each object in the universe is composed of what we call atoms. If you know anything about atoms, there's electrons, there's neutrons, there's protons. And can I tell you, they are literally bundles of pure energy. Energy in motion all the time. Motion that provides matter. And that matter makes up the world we live in. Everything you look at is made up of these atoms and even smaller particles. And they're always moving. Nothing is ever sitting stagnant. You may be stagnant or appear to be, but everything in you is moving. See, that's how God is. He's, he's never tired. He never wears out. And his creation reflects that energy. So obviously, the God who can create more universes than man can count, and who can contain within the tiny heart of an itty-bitty atom enough energy to literally obliterate an island, he can't possibly grow tired. He just can't. And yet we read that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his work of creating all things. And that's really the issue. He rested from his work of creating all things. That includes the universe and all that's contained within it, to include the, the earth itself, all the creatures that he made, even mankind himself. Everything was created during six days, and on the seventh day, the Lord was done creating. He rested. Not because God needed to relax, not because he needed a break. That's not the issue. He rested because he was finished with creation, the creative act. The Bible states again that he rested on the seventh day of creation. But again, he didn't need to refresh himself. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 121, verse 4, the Bible says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 40, 28, the Bible says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? He didn't become tired, weary, worn out faint because of his creation? Not at all. It was only a rest in the sense that it was an act of discontinuing motion or action of any kind, whether temporary or final. God was not fatigued. He was not worn out, but rather he had finished creating. And when he finished creating, the Bible tells us that he looked upon everything that he had created and he declared it very good. 
Therefore, creation was complete. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. He looked upon all that he created and it was very good. Can I tell you today that one of the greatest travesties of this whole transgender movement and this identity crisis that we have is that they are unwilling to let God be God, that they have made up their minds that he made mistakes. You obviously made a mistake, God, because it's, I'm not very good. Matter of fact, I'm very confused about who and what I am. God says, I've defined who you and what you are, and I promise you the way I created you is the best way. But mankind rejects God's ways in his life, and he rejects God's definition even of what gender is today, and he says, God doesn't know what he's doing. God makes mistakes. That's exactly what they're saying. But he doesn't. It may not always be what we want, and we may find ourselves striving and struggling to maintain a biblical presentation in our lives and testimony out in the world but the fact is is no matter how bent we are on lust no matter how difficult our hearts may be no matter how confused we may be internally God holds the key and he has the answer and how we were created is indeed exactly how we should be created we need to deal with it not him well what about uh, what about what How's come it's just been in the last how many decades that we've been truly dealing with all these issues, it seems. Before that, it did get addressed and it was dealt with. And you know how it was dealt with? Through the Word of God. The man that said, I have a desire toward children was told, you touch a child and you're going to pay the price, buster. Now it's like, well, you got to understand, that's just how they were made. It's how they were created with a desire toward children. And we're moving closer and closer to allowing adults to harm and hurt children. It's going to happen probably in the next decade. You watch as we see the deterioration of our culture, all because we don't want to recognize that God's creative act was indeed very good. Look how easy it is to get sidetracked in a message. You didn't know that, but none of that's in the notes. But here's the thing about the creation. God rested on the seventh day. But it's not that he ceased from being intimate and close with the creation itself. Oh, he ceased from the new creative work that he was doing. But he is not distant from his creation, nor did he leave the universe or to run itself, to take care of itself. God didn't do that. The Lord is still intimately involved in all that he has created. The psalmist points this out. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? The implication isn't, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You don't mind him. No, it's that you do mind him. You are viewing him. You're watching over him. You take a special interest in him. What in the world are we as human beings, the created beings? Why would you waste your time on us? So the psalmist makes it clear that God wasn't finished with his creation, he was just finished creating. Thank God that he's here today. So he plays an active role in the lives of mankind, and he plays an active role throughout history. We see him calling Abraham, enlisting Moses, directing Israel, sending the prophets. We see him even sending his son, Jesus Christ. He's actively involved in his creation. Jesus affirmed this truth when we read about it over there in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 17, and he said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. God continually upholds and sustains his creation. I mean, he says that all things are, excuse me, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He's in and active in all aspects of his creation. What we find in Scripture is that God rested from His creative work. But unfortunately, sin entered, didn't it? Sin entered into the garden and into the hearts of mankind. And therefore, God's rest was disrupted. And He began His redemptive work. He had 
a creative work and he rested. However, mankind in sin, God recognized the need to begin a redemptive work. And we've been watching that redemptive work through the scriptures and through history for almost 6,000 years now. So it's not that God is inactive, just that he's no longer creating new things. New things like new planets or commanding new animals into existence. So when the scriptures speak of God's rest, it's from his creative work. He was no longer creating as he did during those six days, creating the heavens and the earth. Again, hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? That the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, feigneth not, neither is weary. Ah, he never grows tired, never weary. So realizing that God wasn't fatigued, he wasn't tired, he wasn't wore out, if you will. We learn a few things from the fact that he rested. One, the rest of God tells us, not the rest of God, but his rest. It's not like the rest of the story. Some of you know who I'm talking about, Paul Harvey. But the rest of God tells us that the creation was complete. It was finished. It was complete. In Genesis 2.1, he said, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Man, that's, I'll tell you what, when you get back there in the book of Genesis and you start reading, you start to see little words and phrases that pop out to you. And one of those is that the earth, it, were, it, it says it were finished, that word finished. Well, I still remember that those words in creation that rang out, it is finished, rang out again on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. God's at busy working still. In one sense, not a creative act anymore, but in a redemptive act. There's great satisfaction in seeing a finished work, isn't there? You ever put together a puzzle? We do these puzzles at least once a year. I say we, my wife, and some of the daughter-in-laws. And every once in a while I go over there like I did this year and looked at it and went, picked a piece up and went, uh-uh, <laughs> no. Nah. But boy, let me tell you something. When you start to see that thing start to take shape and the pieces start finding their way into the right, exactly where they belong, and the picture begins to become more clear, it's like, wow, this is awesome. And there it sits on the table, complete and finished, and you go, man, let me step back and look at that. Woo, all those, that thousand pieces, those little tiny pieces. Wow, look at what they made. Oh man, there's something about finishing something. And God took a step back in order to cast an admiring, contented eye over the finished work of his hands. It's finished. I can cease work. The final piece is in place. So the rest of God tells us that the creation was complete. But not only that, that rest of God tells us that God was content with his creation. The Bible says on the seventh day, God, having ended his work, the Bible tells us that he rested and then he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now, good luck finding a definition for blessed in this case. I have looked up commentaries. I have dug into word studies. I've looked at everything. And people always neglect it. And I thought, man, I got a question. What's he mean when he says blessed? That he blessed that seventh day. What does that actually mean? We know that he blessed his, his creative act, those, those animals and those beings, and then he blessed mankind in chapter 1, verse 28. We know that, and he said to go out and be fruitful, multiply. We get that. He blessed them. 
I got to thinking as I looked at some of that, I thought, well, about the only thing I can think of in the context would maybe be something like he approved of it. And, he, and as a result of that, he, when he stepped back and he saw it, he approved of what he had created. He blessed it. He gave his approval, his stamp of approval, and then he sanctified it. He set it apart as his own, and he set it apart as holy from other days. Because in it, he rested from all his work. God made the seventh day, in this case, holy. Or set apart from the other six days. Even before sin entered the world, God intended that the very beginning, from the very beginning, that the seventh day was to be special. In his case, there was to be a day that was sanctified, a day that was set apart. He set that as a pattern for us. And someone says, yeah, but we are Christians and we are no longer under the law. Well, before the law was ever instituted, there was a rest. It set us a pattern for things. We are not necessarily required to keep the Sabbath. That's true and absolutely true. But the early church, as we'll see in the future, talked about it as the Lord's Day. It was no longer on a Sabbath day, a Friday night to a Saturday night. From six Friday to six Saturday night, that would have been the Sabbath. No, now it's the first day of the week. In Jewish terms, it would have been literally Saturday night at six o'clock till Sunday night at six. And that's why so many Christians even kind of make the mistake at times of thinking like some of Seventh-day Adventists will look at that and say, well, they had church on Saturday nights. They did sometimes until they moved away from the Jewish emphasis and the Sabbath because most Christians went to the Sabbath where there you'll notice the apostles on the Sabbath day preaching and teaching and sharing the truth with the people that were lost without Christ. And then they met together as a church on the Lord's day. See, God intended that a day be set aside. This day to be set aside is, as he deems it, his day and a holy day. So I want to give you three quick thoughts and we're done. And I mean that. You say, oh, that's intro? Eh, not really. That's kind of the message. But I want to give you three simple thoughts. I want to talk, first of all, I want to share our duty. I want to note the danger and then see the difference. And we'll do that all in probably five minutes. So let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, now in these next few minutes to bring glory to you. Lord, I thank you that, Father, as we speak of you and your glory, that, Father, you are exalted. But, Lord, now in this time, Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our lives. Thank you for the people of God. And, Lord, help us to recognize the need to have a unique, special day in which we come together to worship and to praise and to glean from you and your word to truly, Father, take a step back and recognize your goodness and grace in our lives. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, our duty then. I mean, we have a duty. On the Lord's day, and, we, and obviously in Genesis we see that the Lord himself established a specific day, a day in which he stepped back, a day in which he reflected, a day in which he acknowledged the finished work. And on the Lord's Day, then, we need to, one, recognize the need to retreat from the daily cares of life. That's called rest. And again, this is the thing. You and I both probably have worked seven days a week, sometimes for months at a time, maybe. But if you have done that, you know how it eventually begins to take a toll on you. God intended that mankind work no more than six days and take a rest day. Why? Because he knows his creation. Matter of fact, we are created in his image. And the fact is, and his likeness, and the fact is, is that God himself took a rest. Why? As an example and testimony to us, as a need to rest. If you never step back and smell the coffee or smell the roses... You never enjoy or step back and see what's being accomplished and what's being done. Let me tell you, it'll wear you down fast. 
The Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, we are to retreat from the daily cares of life. That's rest. We are to refocus on the Lord at that point. When we talk about refocusing on the Lord, we're talking about reverencing the Lord. I don't know about you, but out in the world, things get so hectic and busy all the time. It seems I've always got something to do. People are demanding time and attention. Things are popping up along the way. And if I'm not careful, God can be the last one that I even think about. You know what we do on the Lord's Day? We refocus on the Lord. We reverence Him. And when I say that, I'm saying we slow down long enough to bow down before Him and acknowledge His superiority and His greatness. What else? On the Lord's Day, we're to retreat, yes, from the daily cares of life, refocus on the Lord. But we're to return to the altar. That's rededication. When we take a moment of rest in our lives, many times it gives us an opportunity to begin to reflect. And in this case, we're reflecting on the Lord and His goodness and grace in our lives. And we see everything that God has done and we see a need to rededicate ourselves back to Him completely. And you say, I can do that a couple times a year. You need to do it like me every day probably. But God says at least once a week, designate a day where you take the time to literally look to me and recognize all I've done and reverence me and rededicate yourself back to me and the work and will of God. And finally, on our Lord's Day, we're to remind ourselves of what is truly important. It's a realignment. It's easy again to get out in the world and lose sight of what's valuable and what's important. Well, my family's so important. It is, but you don't have a family without God. My job is absolutely necessity. Oh, it is in a sense, because that's the way you support and you care for your, your family. And that's God's plan for the church, that you give consistently your tithes and offerings. I get it. Make all the money you can in six days. Give yourself a chance, though, to step back and to figure out what's important. Because you and I can lose sight of that. Problems arise in our life, and next thing you know, they're bigger than life itself. And we get so burdened down, and we can't even think straight. And we wonder, what are we going to do next? And you know what the Lord's Day does for us? It gives us the rest we need, the time to step back. It gives us an opportunity to acknowledge God and everything He's done, and reverence Him, and ultimately rededicate ourselves back to Him who created us. And then it allows us time to realign ourselves back to His purpose and His plan for our life. So we see the duty, but what of the danger? You know what the danger of this Lord's Day is to me? And I think we see evidence of it by the fact that we no longer attend the way we used to. People don't see the need for it. It can become robotic and ritualistic. Just, you, you know, okay, I'm going to church. That's what I got to do. I'm acknowledging the Lord's Day. That's, that's good, but you know what? That in and of itself is not accomplishing what God intended it to do. The Bible talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away in 2 Corinthians 3.5. There's an element where we're going through the motions. We're simply doing what we're supposed to do. We're fulfilling our responsibilities. We're appeasing our families and the pastor and we think maybe even the Lord. We're, we're, we're you know, helping our, uh, to ease our own consciences even. But the danger is that it can become robotic and ritualistic this day of the Lord. Also, we can lose sight of its purpose. That's a danger. We miss his intent. And we recreate, we recreate our own purpose in attending the house of God. Why is it we go? Is it because of this element of rest, reverence, rededication, realignment? Or is it simply because, well, I need some self-help. I need encouragement. I need entertained. I need some social interaction. I'm going to church because that's where my friends are. I'm going to church because that's just where I, how I grew up believing and I want to make sure I feel good about myself and that I become a better, the best me I can be. Well, that's not why God said to do it. 
Those things might end up coming out of it and be a byproduct of, but they are not the reasons. Churches have become social clubs today. They say, we're a church. Well, then what do you do to reach the world with the gospel? Well, we're doing our best, but we have wonderful programs for our folks. Matter of fact, we have Bible studies all the time. That's good, but what are you doing with all the information you're acquiring? You know, back in Egypt, back there with Joseph's day, they, 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 they knew, Joseph said, listen, we're in a time of prosperity here. We better start saving what we have. We better put it away because there's coming a day when a famine is going to show up and we're going to need what we've saved. Can you know what they did? They didn't just keep putting more in the storehouse and more in the storehouse and more in the storehouse and never once give it out. There came a day they said, you know what? We're so full, we got to keep giving out now. Can I tell you that as a believer, you are very selfish to come to a church like Community Baptist Temple and receive what you receive and keep it to yourself. You have missed the point and purpose of the day of the Lord if you don't tell somebody about what God is doing in your life. And you don't have to tell them exactly the way I would, but you just need to say, God is good and he's making a difference in my life and you need him too. It becomes robotic and ritualistic. We can lose sight of its purpose. We can go cold and indifferent to it. We saw those statistics. We've seen what happened. Now I'm going to ask you real quickly to turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I'm going to show you, and again, I'll be honest with you, I, I can't say for sure that's what happened here, but, you know, this, this, I can picture this happening in our own spiritual lives. This is a physical picture of what I think can happen in our spiritual lives. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, that's interesting, there you go, that's the Lord's day, you know that? That wasn't the Sabbath day. Notice this, Though then the disciples came together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue his speech, and continued his speech until midnight. Can you imagine that? Let's get together for a service tonight. Preacher's going to preach till midnight. Praise God, it's the Lord's day. Let's have it. It's the Lord's day. It's not mine. Let's have it. Give me all you got. Both barrels, baby. (laughs) Watch this. This is great. And there there were many lights in the upper chamber. They were gathered together. So it wasn't dark. Many lights. It was lit up. Verse 9, there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. I don't know about you, but if this young man was sitting where he needed to be sitting and his posture was what it probably ought to have been, he probably wouldn't have fell out Three stories to his death. You say he didn't die. That's because he was raised. But notice he fell out a window. You know what I think? I think if we're not careful, we can go cold and indifferent to the house of God in the Lord's day. We come and yeah, we show up. We sit in the pew, but our minds have checked out. We're there physically, but emotionally and spiritually, we're not there. We're here in the preaching, if you will, superficially, it's not really getting into us, and we have a tendency to lean out because really we'd prefer not to be here at all. I believe that one of the dangers of the Lord's day can be that we grow cold and indifferent to it if we're not careful. And the statistics that we read earlier reflect that. Finally, the difference. We need only look around us today and see that neglecting the Lord's Day hasn't served our nation or our communities well. That's all. I'm not even going to go into it. Honestly, look around you sometime. You that are 40 years and over, ask yourself, are we better today as a nation, as a society, as a community, than we were 40 years ago? With all of our equity preaching and all of our our newfound philosophies 
all of our programs and all of our political efforts, are we better today than we were 40, 50, 60 years ago? Especially when we think about the Lord's Day. When we think about how things were emphasized on the Lord's Day. It was in the 70s that we find many local communities starting to hedge on that more than ever. Now it's, you can sell alcohol at 1 o'clock, and you can lower it to 11 o'clock if you're uh, serving it in the stadium. And all of those things were changing 50 years ago. I wonder, I don't know about you, but I'm only 59 years old, but I can guarantee you this. Our culture, our country, our society, you go and believe whatever you want. You listen to the media, they'll tell you that your country stinks, it's no good, there's nothing positive about it. But I promise you this, as an older man, I look back and I can tell you as a culture, I'm talking about as a whole, there was more order in our country. There was more cohesiveness. I'm not saying people weren't being hurt and harmed. They're going to be hurt and harmed till the day Jesus comes back. People will always be taken advantage of. People will always be poor. There will always be folks that don't have everything everyone else has. That is life, friend. You don't have to agree with that, but all you have to do is go back thousands of years and you'll see there's never been a utopia where everybody had it all. Karl Marx was an idiot. Socialism does not work. If it worked, we'd already be doing it here in this country. It doesn't work that way. Biblically, it does not line up. If you don't work, you don't eat according to the Bible. That's how it lines up. Now listen, I know that's controversial today. But we have left God in the cold today. We've totally disregarded Him and His Word. And we're trying to make it on our own. And we're devising our own paths and schemes. And there is a way that is right in the eyes of a man, the sight of a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It seemeth right unto a man, but it's death. And I just want to encourage you, the Lord's day is still important. Make Sunday important in your life. Make it important in your children's lives. Make it a big deal. As the world continues to move away from the Lord's day, you get closer to it. You keep lifting up Christ. You keep allowing yourself to take time to read this book. Focus on the Word of God. To apply it to your life. Don't let the world tell you what is a priority, what is important, what matters. Let God tell you what matters. Let God define how your home should be ordered. Let God define how your marriage should look. Let God define how the discipline in your home should look with your children. Let God do those things. And you know what? That's all part of this day of the Lord. We have discarded the day of the Lord. And as a result, we have discarded all the redeeming qualities that God gives us in this word. In our country, our culture is falling apart. And I honestly believe it's because we have no respect for the Lord's day, and that's a result of no respect for Him. God help us. It's time to get back to the Lord's day. And that begins by getting back to God. I wonder, are you with the Lord? Are you right with the Lord? Are you where you belong with God? You say, well, there's a lot of things I don't agree. I don't care about what you don't agree with, and he don't care right now. What he does care is whether you agree with him. Are you right with him? You know, it's funny, when I get right with God, all of a sudden a lot of the other junk just falls into place. Get right with God today. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I tell you that 2,000 years ago, He died on a cross to pay for your sin? Remember we said that He finished His creative work there in Genesis, but He began a redemptive work? You know what that means? Right there, that's what it means. He literally ended up on Calvary paying for your sin and mine because you couldn't pay for it, neither can I. He alone can. God Himself in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, is the only qualified candidate whose blood is perfect, who is sinless, who can literally hang on Calvary and pay the sin debt for mankind. And you know what? He wants you to receive and accept Him today. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It begins with the Lord. Don't just make the Lord's day important. First, make Him important. 
Make Him important. And then the Lord's Day will have purpose. It won't just be another duty, although it is our duty. But it won't just be a duty. It'll be a delight. Get saved today if you don't know Christ as your Savior. You say, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin. And when you stand in that pew today and you know, man, there's something not right. There's something wrong inside. I probably need to settle something with God. I can tell something's not right. You know what that he's saying? Go, go forward. Talk to somebody with a Bible that can show you how to be saved. And if you're a child of God and you know you're saved and something's telling you you need to go forward or you need to bow at your seat, you need to deal with something, just acknowledge that it's the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you and that you're going to get it right with Him before you walk out the door today. Whether it's at your seat or here in a pew, one way or the other, get it right. It's the Lord's day. Let's give Him His just dessert and His due. Let's not think about lunch yet. Let's give him a couple more minutes to do a work in our lives. He deserves so much more, but let's just at least give him that now. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we do ask, Lord, that you'd help us. Lord, we, none of us are perfect. We all have flaws, and every one of us needs help. Lord, there's no doubt that as believers, we have got to acknowledge you and recognize you and and appreciate what you've done for us. We need to elevate your word and your, your philosophies and your statutes and your commands above all else. Help us, Lord, once a week to kind of realign ourselves with you and your word. If we, 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 we should be every day meeting with you, but Lord, it's good to just step away once a week from the mundane and, and the the, the rat race, if you will, and take the time to truly focus on you and allow your Holy Spirit to speak and your word to do its work in our lives. Our Father, guide us and help us this morning. And there may be those that are in our midst that have not yet received Jesus as their Savior and Lord. They're uncomfortable maybe even at this moment as the Holy Spirit begins to convict them of their sin and they're concerned about where they'll spend eternity even this moment. I pray, Lord, that as we begin to sing and as the, the music plays that or as the music begins to play, that they will take step out of the aisle, into the aisle and come right forward and have somebody take a Bible and show them how they too can know Jesus as their Savior and settle their heart. We'll thank you. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head